Hi, everyone. Before we get into the show this week, we wanted to take a moment and acknowledge the world outside our window. While it's not our place as a couple of white people to drag our feelings into the spotlight, it would be grotesquely irresponsible to keep quiet while nationwide protests are met with the most repulsive and brutal response by law enforcement. The murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis was an atrocity and not a singular event. You're mad and we're mad. As a small gesture of solidarity with the protests, in addition to our own personal donations, we've printed 111 by 17 prints of our show poster illustrated by Karen X-Men Fan. If you donate to any number of Black Lives Matter organizations, we will ship you a poster free of charge. All you gotta do is drop us a line via Twitter or email at cbccpodcast at gmail.com with your donation receipts. It's not enough, and we must all keep fighting the good fight and vote in every damn election going forward. With all that said, if you're not in the mood to listen to us jabber on about Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon this week, we'll totally understand. And we're not going anywhere anyway. Take care of yourself, stay strong, be well, and speak truth to power. You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month, we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. This month, we're strapping on our utility belts with Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson of the DC Comics Universe— And we're applying Dr. Roberta M. Gilbert's Extraordinary Relationships, A New Way of Thinking About Human Interactions, to Their Relationship Woes. Alrighty, here we go. We're swinging right back into Gotham City, sticking with the DC Comics for two couples in a row. Uh, How do you feel about that, Lisa? You know me, Brad. I am (laughs) a control freak. Uh And the idea of handing over our sacred reins to the listeners... Made me very uncomfortable. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, you know, considering that you enjoyed Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy so much and you had a great time with Batman and Catwoman way back when. But we established I- a pattern. Marvel, DC, independent. Marvel, yeah, DC, independent. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Normally, we try to change things up month to month. But since we're gearing up for our epic CBCC 50th episode, which will actually be something like our 67th episode, if you count all our various bonus and creator corner episodes. We have only been doing this for a year, and we've already started using legacy numbering. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but but we wanted to give our listeners a chance to pick a couple, and we opened it up to a raffle. Lucky for you guys, I loved this suggestion, and I loved this episode's comic book. Yeah, and holy cats, did we get a lot of suggestions. And we're going to save and use them later on down the line. So don't lose any sleep if you did not get picked. But the winner of the raffle was Dr. Dina, PhD, a.k.a. at Is It Broken Yet on Twitter, with her pick, Dick and Babs, a.k.a. Robin Batgirl, or Nightwing Oracle, depending on your timeline or universe. Aren't comics just the best? So why was this her OTP? Uh, Well, she was kind enough to give us a soundbite. So why don't you take it away, Dr. Dina? 
Hi, comic book couples counseling. This is Dr. Dina here. Uh, Twitter handle is it broken yet? And part of what makes Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon one of my OTPs, one of my favorite couples, is that um, we have been lucky enough as readers to see them grow up from teenagers to young adults to adults. And in comic land, you don't get to see that very often. Somebody's always stuck in their 30s for 60, 70 years. But with these two characters, not only do we get to see them grow up on their own as characters with agency, but we get to see them grow up with each other and fall in love and fall out of love and be besties and not be besties and date other people. And ultimately, they usually end up with each other in the end. And one of my favorite all-time stories is an alternate universe story written by Gail Simone. It's the Nightwing Oracle Convergence series. And I think this is the story that all Dick and Babs fans wanted to see. The will they, won't they, happy ever after. Because um, their relationship was never quite the two of them together. Um, it's been a little rocky. But seeing the two of them in this alternate universe coming together is kind of like the chef's kiss at the end of this, watching them grow up and come together. So thanks a lot for picking this couple. I'm really looking forward to Brad and Lisa's take on this. Brad and Lisa, that's us. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Dina, thank you so much. And you make such an excellent point there about being able to watch Dick and Babs grow up together. One of the most weird and sometimes aggravating aspects of comics is how certain characters are never allowed to grow up. Um, you know, cough, cough, see our <laughs> Spider-Man One More Day episode. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know that much about Barbara Gordon or really Dick Grayson at all. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you that, Lisa, because, you know, obviously you're a Batman maniac. We've covered Batman and Catwoman on the show before. We've covered just recently Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. Uh, but like we haven't talked so much about the sidekicks. Like what was your experience with Robin before reading Batgirl year one? Uh, Burt Ward? Yeah, okay, so yeah, and like you, you're a big fan of Bot, uh, Batman: The Long Halloween too, right? I I do like that one, but it is very like Batman centric, right. as as most Batman and stories I, are. <laughs> and I've read The Killing Joke. Yeah, and and so if you, oh yeah, you read The Killing Joke, so you've had some interaction with Barbara Gordon then, right? Uh, brief and tragic. Yeah, brief and tragic. So Batgirl Year One was very much like a first. Uh, getting to know you moment with these characters. Yes. Yeah, and by their very nature, these are sidekick characters. They're supporting players. So they tend not to get pushed to the, the forefront. Uh, but when they do, it's really exciting. So like Batgirl Year One, you're like, oh, I get to know a little bit more about Barbara Gordon. That's really cool. She's not just uh, the girl version of Bruce Wayne. Yeah, and... I'm curious. I'm curious about Batgirl. And my experience with them is not that different than yours. Yes, I've read probably more comics than you have, but I've read very little of their solo titles. Although I did have a stint with Birds of Prey back in the late 90s or early aughts or whenever Chuck Dixon was writing it. And as a fan of that series, I always preferred her as Oracle post The Killing Joke. 
which makes, you know, we'll get into it. The new 52 stuff. Ah, it's complicated. It's complicated. You guys. It's complicated. But let's look at the origins of both of these characters. Right. So if we start with Robin, uh, you know, there have been many versions of the character of Robin, right? And I'm sure everyone out there has an opinion on which one is the best, or at least their favorite. Spoilers, I Ride or Die by Damian Wayne. Thank you, Grant Morrison. Uh, but Dick Grayson was the original Robin, and as such, he tends to have the best and worst Robin stories. Dick Grayson first appeared in Detective Comics number 38, written by Bill Finger and illustrated by Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson, and published in April of 1940. Dick was the youngest member of the Flying Grayson's acrobat team, and he was orphaned after the mini-boss Tony Zuko murdered his family in an effort to extort money from the circus. Lisa, how crappy of a goon do you have to be to be squeezing cash from a circus? I... I hear they pay peanuts. <laughs> Lisa, no. I was speaking to an elephant. <laughs> no, that's, that is terrible. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, Bruce Wayne, seeing his own pain in Dick's situation, adopted the young child as his legal ward. It doesn't take long for the kid to put two and two together, and suddenly he's Robin, the boy wonder, the vigilante in training alongside Batman. But to Dr. Dina's point, eventually Dick Grayson grows out of the Robin role and takes on the the mantle of Nightwing, the Dark Knight protector of Bloodhaven, which is basically Gotham City light. Blood Bloodhaven is just like another city. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's just another terrible Gotham-like place. But I mean, Haven. Yeah, it's a haven for blood, Lisa. It's a blood haven. It should at least be a suburb. No. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure we'll get into it over the course of these episodes, but when called upon, Dick Grayson has also donned the Batman costume during events like Nightfall and Final Crisis. When push comes to shove, he's just as much of a badass as Bruce Wayne. Like father, like son, like but not, yes. not his son. Yeah, well, no, that's Damian Wayne, Lisa, the better Robin. We've already discussed this. <laughs> now, when we talk about Batgirl... Um, there have been nearly as many Batgirls as there have been Robins, but like Dick Grayson, uh, there is only one Barbara Gordon. Uh, again, multiverses notwithstanding. Uh, Barbara as Batgirl made her first appearance long after Robin in Detective Comics number 359, written by Gardner Fox and illustrated by Carmine Infantino and Sid Green, and published in January of 1967. However, she was technically created by the Batman television show runner William Dozer and DC Comics editor Julia Schwartz. The TV series needed a new female supporting player to fight alongside Batman and Robin, so Dozier made a request to DC Comics to come up with something. She appears in comics first, but then in September of 1967, she makes her television debut in the season three premiere, Inter Batgirl Exit Penguin. Fun fact, Lisa? I once stole money from Yvonne Craig, the actress who played Barbara Gordon on Batman. What? Yeah. So uh, my dad and I went up to the Mid-Ohio Comic Con. Uh, it's the same uh, convention, the same time that um, I got that David Carradine autograph. It was between Kill Bill's volume one and two. So, so that, that would put you like in like teenager mode? No, it puts me in my early I, 20s. It's oh, like I, 2003 or 2004. So I'm 23 or 24. Okay. And... I'm, you know, I, I go to her table, I go to get an autograph. Um, I'm very nervous. I love Yvonne Craig. I love Batgirl, right? Uh, and, and, you know, I blather, I, I say some dumb, fanish things to her. 
I, I take my autograph. I wander away from the table. Hours go by. Uh, I get autographs from Brad Dorif. I get ad- autographs from the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. Oh, wow. I meet Michael Avon Aiming. In fact, that's when I bought that uh, Powers Forever artwork that oh, hangs nice. on our wall. Um, yeah, so I realize suddenly I never gave her cash for that autograph. Oh, no. So I had just taken and, and I had stolen from her. Oh, no. And so then I had to go back to the table and go like, um, I don't know if you remember me, but uh, hours ago I got an autograph and I never gave you money. And I, and so I, did you have to say that to her directly or did she have a person, like a handler? She, she had a person, but her line wasn't that particularly long. And oh. so I was going back So insult to, to injury, you successfully robbed her and then went back and rubbed it in her face. Uh, yeah, correct. Yeah. Because she didn't have a line. Yeah, cor- yes, correct, correct. Yeah. Anyway, Lisa, okay. uh, Barbara Gordon is the daughter of Gotham City Police Commissioner James Gordon. And rather than go into a full-on discussion of how she came to be Batgirl, how about we just talk about the comic at hand, Batgirl Year One? But before we do that, we got to discuss this month's love guru, Lisa, who is our new love guru? And what book are we going to be using to help us through the on-again, off-again relationship between Dick and Babs? Buckle up. Our love guru for Grey Bat will be Dr. Roberta M. Gilbert with her book, Extraordinary Relationships, colon, A New Way of Thinking About Human Interactions, end of title, which is based on (laughs) Dr. Murray Bowen's family systems theory. That's a mouthful. There's a lot going on right there. Yeah. Let's break it down. Dr. Bowen is the founder of Systematic Therapy, which seeks to address groups of people, most often families, as a singular entity in which predictable patterns of behavior emerge when under threat, stress, or anxiety. It seeks to short-circuit the emotional chain reactions that negatively affect our relationships and quality of life and rewire our habits to be overall happier and more productive as individuals, as well as part of a system or family. This week, we'll be covering the front matter of the book, which gives a little context to where the Bowen theory comes from, how Dr. Gilbert folded it into her own psychiatry practice, and a very broad introduction into what the Bowen's theory is all about. Before discovering the Bowen's theory, Dr. Roberta M. Gilbert, MD, had a successful psychiatry practice. She had been following the prevailing psychiatric theories, and while she felt like her results were, for the most part, productive, she still felt that there was something missing. The standard approach to family therapy was the deep exploration of the patient's feeling. The process was often emotional and painful and just led to more therapy. She felt she was leading her patients into what she called a feelings jungle, with no clear destination or goal in sight. The result was often the patient becoming more dependent on their therapist, not less. Hmm. When she stumbled across the Bowen family systems theory in the 1980s, she started applying it to her personal life and in her practice. It involved a painstaking and arduous paradigm shift from thinking in feelings to thinking in systems, but with it came results the likes of which she had never seen before. Even with her success, she received pushback from her colleagues who would ask why she was going through the trouble of learning a new radical theory when she was already considered successful using what was considered standard practice. She, on the other hand, was flabbergasted that other psychiatrists were not beating a path to Dr. Marie Bowen's door. 
Dr. Gilbert likened the shift in thinking from existing psychiatric ideas to the Bowens theory to a child learning that a flat horizon is a representation that the earth is round. Damn, Roberta! Shots fired! (laughs) Since writing the first edition of Extraordinary Relationships in 1992, Dr. Gilbert has written four more books on the Bowen theory. Connecting... Oh, and here's their titles. Let's hear it. Connecting with Our Children, Guiding Principles for Parents in a Troubled World, Eight Concepts of Bowen Theory, A New Way of Thinking about the Individual and the Group, Extraordinary Leadership, Thinking Systems, Making a difference. This just sounds like the world's longest title. <laughs> well, I don't think the flat earthers are going to like it, Lisa, but uh, I'm willing to give just it a go. Just go to her Amazon, you guys. <laughs> why am I? Why did I list these in my notes? We're reading the second edition of Extraordinary Relationships, in which she made significant edits to the first edition, which at time of publication in 2017 had been 25 years in print, a testament to how well received the first edition of the book was. In the foreword, she does itemize the significant edits made to the first edition, which generally served to expand and clarify her understanding of Bowen family systems theory following these 25-plus years of application through her practice, as well as seminars, blah, 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 blah. I I get it. She's legit. That's more than we can say for some of our love gurus. Yeah. Let's get real. That's right. I'm looking at you, Dr. Gray. (laughs) The new book is organized in these three parts. Part one, Relationships We Live In, chapters one through eight, considers the togetherness force that binds people in important relationships, especially in families. Part two, Extraordinary Relationships, chapter nine through 13, takes up the individuality force, differentiation of self, and what an ideal relationship might look like. That is, one where both partners are perfectly individuated. Ooh, that's a fun word to say. Individuated. Individuated. Get your lips around that. Individuated. Individuated. Part three. (laughs) Toward better relationships. Chapter 14 through 18 goes into some ways of thinking about taking action on self that systems thinkers use in relationships. Okay. All right. From my cursory understanding of the Bowens family systems theory, from just reading the forwards of this book, of which there are four, by the way. Four forwards? Four forwards. That's too many forwards. And the ver- They're short, though. And the very <laughs> first chapter of part one, the main difference between it and the prevailing psychiatric practice of the 1980s is that the Bowen theory chooses not to bog itself down by diagnosing each individual feeling and their root causes, but rather what is the intensity of the emotion and how does it distribute itself through the family system? And how can we retrain the system so that the distribution of emotions is productive for the individuals within the system rather than destructive? So if we go back to the feelings jungle metaphor, the therapist's job is to not guide the patient through the jungle addressing each individual tree, but rather to take a bird's eye view of the jungle and offer the patients a map so they can navigate their way out. Next week, we're going to be diving into part one, relationships we live in. So I thought we'd pre-game that conversation by starting to think about the togetherness force and how it might apply to Barbara Gordon in Batgirl year one. According to the index, the togetherness force is the tendency of organisms under threat or in an anxious environment to lose self to the group. Synonyms include undifferentiation, symbiosis, and immaturity. 
Going off this definition alone, I think there are probably a lot of pros and cons to the togetherness force. The idea that there is strength in numbers and by being undifferentiated from the group makes you a hard target as an individual. But there also seems to be a certain amount of discontent that comes from being not seen as an individual. Barbara is under a tremendous amount of threat and anxiety living in Gotham with her only close family member, Captain James Gordon, facing a great deal of danger every day. She initially feels a strong togetherness force to become a cop like her dad, but ultimately gets rejected by her father and the system itself. She then feels the need to differentiate herself from her dad by becoming a vigilante by trying to endear herself to Black Canary, but ultimately ends up losing her identity by becoming associated with the Bat family of heroes. Mm. I think we can apply extraordinary relationships by tracking each character's non-specific intense emotions and how they result in either differentiation or togetherness. Mm. Yeah, you know, like looking at this, I feel like obviously this book uh, is not as maybe engaging or as exciting as what Lindsay King Miller wrote for our series of episodes with Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. But I think the content of this applies really well to Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. And yeah, that idea propelled me through reading this book. Because it I, sounds a little dry, Lisa. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> it's not Dr. Roberta Gordon's fault, actually. And I learned this from one of the forwards. So when <laughs> she got introduced to the Bowens theory, she was immediately fired up and impassioned. And she wrote this paper about how the Bowens theory transformed the way that she practiced. Mm. And she submitted it to a scholarly publication and they're like, this paper is great. We think that it's amazing, but we can't publish it because it's too personal and therefore not scientific. Mm -hmm. That and, sounds like a little bit like what Barbara Gordon went through when she went to the police department. But instead of going like, screw it, I'm just going to practice my psychiatry like a vigilante, she went back and was able to turn her paper over in a matter of days and resubmit it, and it did ultimately get published. Okay, cool, cool, cool. But I think because of that kind of tra traumatizing experience early in her career. She dug her heels in. So, like, we're not going to come away from reading Extraordinary Relationships feeling like we've gotten to know Dr. Roberta M. Gilbert super well. Yeah, certainly not the way that we did with Lindsay King Miller. But they have completely different tones because mm. Lindsay King Miller is talking to us like a pal. Like, hey, I've been through some stuff and I think that I've learned a lot and maybe some of what I say has value to you where Dr. Roberta M. Gilbert, PhD, is like, I'm a doctor I've seen this work in my, in my practice. This is going to have footnotes, Brad. Okay. Prepare yourself for endnotes. Okay. She might even reference a scholarly paper. Oh, boy. But, dude, is, I mean, it's, it's super dry. Fair enough. But I think we've got enough to at least get us to the comic. Yeah, for sure. So Batgirl Year One, uh, it was a nine-issue miniseries that was originally published between February and October of 2003, written by Scott Beattie and Chuck Dixon, penciled by Marcus Martin, inked by Alvera Lopez, lettered by Willie Schubert, and colored by the great Javier Rodriguez. Uh, Batgirl Year One was modeled after the iconic Batman Year One by Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli, 
Like the classic comic book series, Batgirl Year One travels back in time to bring a little extra context to the early adventures of Barbara Gordon as the Cape Crusader copycat. Like everyone else on the planet, Lisa and I are massive fans of Batman Year One. That we are. And you can actually go back to CBCC episode 10 to hear our thoughts on the storyline as filtered through our Batman and Catwoman relationship conversation. While I've kind of grown bored by the concept of revisiting origin stories over and over again, especially as how we're constantly bombarded by these kinds of tales cinematically, it turns out I'm still a sucker for the Year One format. The year one format is not like your run-of-the-mill origin story. It plays on the idea that the reader already knows. Yeah, because it's not uh, Tom Holland putting on the suit that Andrew Garfield wore before him and Tobey Maguire wore before him. It's not meant to bring on new readers. No. It's meant to reward people who are curious once they know Batgirl is Oracle. Yeah, it's using the reader's knowledge of the characters and of their narratives against them. And that's so exciting. Yeah, it's super cool. Especially when they're overseen by guys like Beattie and Dixon. While I've never really adored them as creators, shame on me, uh, they have worked in the industry for a very long time and are obvious big time comic book geeks. Beattie is probably best known for those massive DC Comics Ultimate Guides, which are basically these pornographically detailed superhero encyclopedias. You'll find them littered all throughout our apartment. When you read Batgirl Year One, that knowledge of character is on full display and absolutely elevated by Marcus Martin's art and Javier Rodriguez's colors. You've danced around it, Brad, but tell our listeners exactly what is Batgirl Year One. All right, Lisa. Well, you know, we got to go to our great friends over at Goodreads for their plot summaries. That's how we do it. Here's what they had to say. Batgirl Year One is a look into the action-packed origin of the original Batgirl, Barbara Gordon. This volume collects the nine-issue miniseries that uncovered Gordon's transformation from average citizen into costume superheroine. Lisa, how did Goodreads do this week? Isn't the original Batgirl technically Betty Kane? Yeah, there was a Batgirl before this Batgirl, and there was actually also a Batwoman before this Batgirl. So, yeah, there's, you know, it's technically not, but like within the continuity that they are establishing with Batgirl year one, they're calling her the original Batgirl. Okay, I give them a B minus. A B minus. And I do like, and we're going to get into this, how she comes up as Batgirl instead of Batwoman, because yeah. clearly she wanted to be Batwoman, but Who there's wouldn't? Like a, a story beat there. So, okay. All right. Well, the well, only thing worse would be Bat Lady. Bat Lady? I'm surprised there's not a Bat Lady. But let's concentrate on how uh, Batgirl did not become Batwoman. Let's just crack into chapter one Masquerade. So it opens with. Killer Moth and his purple-clad <laughs> thugs. I love that the main villain of Batgirl Year One is Killer Moth, with a little Firefly later on <laughs> down the line. I think that was a true delight. The, this was the introduction to these characters for me. Mm -hmm. So why is that significant to you? Oh, because, uh, I mean, I, I met them through Batman the Animated Series, like all children my age did. Uh -huh. And, of course, like Batman Brave and the Bold. Uh, and I'm, I'm honestly not at all familiar with them through comic books in any way. So would you, are they 
Did they originate on the television series? No, no, no. They're 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 OG characters. Okay, okay. But they're not the Joker or Two Face. But this is Batgirl Year One. She can't be facing off with the Joker her and, very first year. And I guess it's better than her going up against like the Condiment King or Crazy Quilt. But what I love about Batgirl Year One though is it takes these kind of lame brain fifties era Batman characters and injects them with some serious menace, right? Oh, so, yeah. yes, it's Killer Moth, you know, ha, 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 what a joke of a name, and Firefly, but, they, I mean, they're demonic. They are bad news. Particularly Firefly. Yeah, yeah. But they're also kind of, like, even though Killer Moth does have the thugs and the costume, he's he's still on kind of an aspirational path. He hasn't reached his full fruition as a villain. You get the idea that Killer Moth is trying to be up there with the big leagues. He would like to be respected like the Penguin, like Joker, uh, but he just doesn't have the talent or the skill to do so. Whereas Firefly, I mean, he is a demon. He just wants to watch the world burn. Yeah. Right, he's a true pyro. And, 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 And so... It what what I like about Beatty and Dixon using these characters is that they're they're being a little cheeky, but they're but they're also rounding out these 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 lame brain characters with with more development, like with more pathos. I don't think that Killer Moth's idea of being the Batman to the villains is a bad idea. I just he clearly doesn't have what it takes to pull that off. <laughs> right, which again is Because he's too fun. sensitive. <laughs> he's very sensitive. He's very <laughs> sensitive. Uh, so yes, yes. Killer Moth, Firefly, uh, two thumbs up from this guy. I'm very happy to see them here. Any hoozles, they're holding up this masquerade party. We find out that this is kind of a policeman's ball type situation. So we flip the page and we get our title page, which is gorgeous, Killer Moth silhouetted in the front, looking all hunched over and holding his crazy Gatling-style machine gun. And then we see Batgirl crouching over. Um, I always want to call him Commissioner Gordon. He's not Commissioner Gordon. He's Lieutenant Gordon, Gordon, I believe. Is he? No, he's Captain. Captain? Okay, he's Captain Gordon. He's Captain Gordon. He's lying on the ground. And then we see a humongous guy in this yellow clown costume who turns out to be Bruce Wayne. What the hell is he wearing? It's like a Pagliacci costume, right? Pagliacci is more defined by like face makeup. Well, okay, just let's just go with clown costume. I think it's very interesting for Bruce Wayne, who is Batman, to come to a party dressed like a clown. Because he's ripped. Like when you go to a costume party, that's when you take the opportunity to put on a sexy costume. And he went with like, mm, I want to go with clown slash pad of butter. But don't you think it's rather interesting that, you know, his arch nemesis is the Joker, the clown prince of crime. Ooh. And here comes Bruce Wayne dressed as a clown. I did not make that connection. I, I, I doubt that he's even thinking that necessarily because, you know, we've talked about this in the past, but Bruce Wayne is a mask for Batman as much as Batman is a mask for Bruce Wayne. And so when he goes into a socialite setting like this, he likes to put the foolish foot forward. Yeah, but he's never gone like full Clark Kent, I'm a doofus. I mean, sometimes he does. Sometimes he definitely goes. But he he goes more like the playboy route. And I feel like the playboy thing to do would be to show off them abs. Well, you know what? He's not thinking like you, the pervert. (laughs) 
Oh, <laughs> that's just my insecure potato body speaking, Lisa. <laughs> uh, what I love about these first few pages also, though, is with Bruce Wayne's presence there, you have Batgirl kicking all kinds of butt and she's doing quite well. They don't need Batman, who is inevitably going to appear uh, a few moments from now. Right. Yeah, you. we see her, like, using a thug's bald head as a fulcrum to kick Killer Moth in the face. Year one, she seems to be highly capable. And this isn't even year one. This is, like, Batgirl day, day one. one. <laughs> because she came to this party with a bat costume just to be part of the party, and then she used that costume to be her vigilante costume going forward. And so this is Batgirl day one, and she's kicking butt. She's taking out Killer Moth's goons. She is more capable on Batgirl day one than Batman was on Batman day one, if we go back to the Frank Miller, David Mazzucchelli story. Hell yeah. And so I, 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 I just adore Barbara Gordon two pages into this book, right? Yeah, totally uh, killing it. Yeah, totally killing it. We also get introduced to her journal as narrator. Yes. And that's going to be consistent all the way through this book. An interesting word pops up in that uh, 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 journal, the, in those first few panels. Cassandra, you mean? Cassandra, Oracle, right? Yeah. And so, like we were saying, it is taking our knowledge that many years from now, Barbara Gordon's going to get shot and have her spine blown out by the Joker and become uh, the next phase of her superhero dim as Oracle, you mm -hmm. know, who controls all of the Bat family behind the computer. Absolutely. And it, she also uses the idea of Oracle as her relationship with the future mm -hmm. and how at this point in her life, she really wants to be at the helm of who she's going to be. Yes, and also this idea of consequence, right? Because we know Oracle is in her future, are her actions of this moment worth the consequence that is coming. Yes. And that question is being asked throughout all nine issues and isn't really answered until the ninth issue. But I and guess in we can, such a perfect way. Yeah, and, but, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Barbara also brings up masks. And we see throughout this volume, this ongoing meditation on what is the meanings of masks? How do they function? Um, in this case, she brings it up as they're at a masquerade. Masks are hiding fear. And in hiding fear, you create an armor. You create a defense. Right. And it frees her in this costume to be the the the, the hero she wants to be, to be the vigilante that she wants to be, to With be the cop that she can't be. Yeah. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but masks do have, if we think in terms of our love guru- um, thinking differentiation versus fusion. Masks can be this tool to help you stand out, but if everybody is wearing a mask, again, you are fused to a crowd. You lose your sense of self. Well, and that, guess what? That's what happens. She becomes one of the bat families. Like, if she really wanted to differentiate herself, she wouldn't choose the bat costume. I, I think the whole, like, road to where she ends up Batgirl by accident is a little bit of a stretch of the imagination. Like you just kind of have to go, go with, with it. it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I do like how it kind of is born from this twisting of the knife at her dad. Right. Who is 
overly protective, who doesn't want her to follow in his footsteps, who certainly doesn't want her to idolize the Batman, even though he needs the Batman in his daily life. Uh, and, and, and so, like, I like that as an idea of, well, I'm going to this party uh, as a little bit of a screw you to, to my father. And then in doing that, I I become the thing that I, I need to become. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we just turn the page, so we're now on the fourth page of the comic, <laughs> we do see Barbara and dad in the kitchen and they are in an argument. They are in conflict because Barbara wants to be a cop and not only is uh, Lieutenant, what should I call him? Not only is Jim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it works. Uh, feels feels very casual for me to call him Jim. Um not only is he going like, I don't want you to be a cop, he kind of implies like, you're not built to be a cop. You're not capable. You're yeah. not capable of being a cop. And cops would laugh at you is, is the way he is coming across. He says, Barbara, be serious. I didn't put you through college so you could walk the beat. I love her retort to that, which is like, you didn't put me through college. Uh, my scholarships put me through college, which means essentially I put me through college. So that's the end of that that point that you just made. Yeah, she kicks ass. She does. She does. But in her journal, she writes like, you don't have to be Cassandra to see that dad is going to be the commissioner. And in being the commissioner, he could make this heart's desire of mine very easy. And he's just not. Yeah, which, uh, again, furthers her hurt. Yeah. Um, I have a question, though. Well, yeah, what's that? Where is, like, what's the deal with Barbara's mom? Who's Barbara's mom? Yeah, I was trying to figure that out myself because she's clearly not in the picture, uh, you know, within Literally, because the... this is a, this is a, yeah, a, that's very a funny. comic book, yeah, very Madame funny, Ching. Very funny, Lisa. Thank you. But within the year one uh, continuity, Barbara, uh, Eileen Gordon, Mrs. Gordon, and Jim have either divorced or separated because of the events of Batman year one. Okay. You know, Cause he had that affair with the police officer. Right. And I believe she has gone to Chicago with James jr. Who grows up to be a nice, quiet little serial killer. <laughs> um, and, and, and our Barbara Batgirl Barbara stays with him. And I think in a post crisis continuity, Barbara Gordon isn't technically the daughter of Jim and Barbara Eileen Gordon, what? but is the niece okay. and adopted daughter. But then that all gets cleared up in New 52 and she does become the daughter again. So we're kind of like in a nebulous zone. Be, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. For all intents and purposes, she's the daughter. But why doesn't she go with mom when she goes to Chicago? I'm not exactly sure. Well, and she's I, practically an adult, so I'm sure her whole life is in Yeah, Gotham. that's true. That's true. That's true. In her journal, though, she she writes, uh, here's a quote, I have to find another path, divine my own future, one uniquely mine, not a page from someone else's book. Kind of ironic, considering that she ends up being Batgirl, <laughs> which is totally feels like a page out of Batman's book. But um, if we're thinking about differentiation, she goes, okay, I can't fuse with the cop system. I can't become one of those. So... I'll have to find something entirely different. But you you think she uses the phrase one uniquely mine? And I think Dr. Gilbert would say there's you can't 
technically have a future that is uniquely yours because we are social animals. So you'll always be join either fuse, fusing to or differentiating well, from again, a system. Again, in defining her own future, she's doing it as a reaction to her father's word. But she does see a person that she would like to fuse with, would like to um, become part of their system, and that's Black Canary. If she could pick a vigilante to be be like, it's not Batman. That, that, that is a very good point. That is a very good point. And it's unfortunate that I guess that uh, she went to this costume party uh, in a joke costume to rile up her dad and then is defined by that joke. Barbara seems to think that she has a lot writing on this joke in terms of what it would mean to her dad if she showed up at a costume party looking like Batman. And to me, I think that, like, I don't see James really getting in this, like, getting his underwear in a twist because she put a costume on. I think she would have been, I I think Jim Gordon would have been fine if, you know, uh, Killer Moth had never shown up and uh, uh, there was no scuffle. And suddenly Barbara just shows up in the Batgirl costume. And I think he would, I think he would get the point. Right. But I don't think he'd be upset. I don't think that it would be this major emotional moment However, that she thinks that it is. However, if it were to be revealed after this entire series that she then went on and became Batgirl, this crime-fighting badass, oh, yeah. he would be infuriated. He oh, would be absolutely. extremely upset, which is why they go to great lengths at the end of this miniseries to hide the fact that Batgirl is not, or to hide the fact that Batgirl is Barbara Gordon. Yeah. Interesting for Batman to support hiding that from her dad. I guess we can talk about that. And later. also Robin, because this we, we we haven't even gotten to the relationship stuff yet of Batgirl and Robin. Oh yeah. What's this podcast about? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's important to bring up a few more sequences from within the first issue, in particular the jujitsu class and the FBI interview. Absolutely. I think these are defining moments in her character. Yes, agreed. So in the jujitsu class, we see Mr. Partsons, who asks her to call him Dragon Cat, which F you, by the way. <laughs> um, he goes like, you have to show me, since you're a little girl, you have to show me you belong in this class. And so she turns his perception on him and she pretends to get all verklempt and intimidated and start to cry. And then... When his guards are down, she gets him in this crazy jujitsu hold and practically breaks his arm. And I love that she, like, everybody sees her being a petite woman as a weakness. And she is already so strong in herself that she can take that weakness, this perceived weakness, and turn it into a strength. Yeah, and well, and the, these sequences are pointing to the fact that societally, women are placed below men. They cannot do what men can do, and, and so and that's still the case. And, like that's and, how society is. And, that's and not that's, like a weird Gotham thing. That, no, that, that, that's still the <laughs> Isn't case. Isn't it crazy that Gotham sees women as weaker, and they probably even pay them less? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that yes, agreed. And what Batgirl Year One is also doing throughout its entire theme is punching that. Uh, 
perception in the balls. In the balls, yeah, yeah. The patriarchy in the balls. Yeah. And then we see that later when she is going to talk to the FBI guy right. and do this interview and go like, so what are my chances that I can become an infield agent? And he's like, uh, slim, because you don't meet the height requirements. Yeah, which by the way, the height requirements, I had to look this up, yeah. were disbanded sometime in the 70s. Makes sense. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, she is going up against some real in-the-box thinking when it comes to being a cop or an agent. And she is so beyond that, even at her young age, beyond that idea of like, small people can't cut it. Yeah, yeah. All right, Lisa, I, I feel like we gotta we gotta get into it. Can we can we talk Batman Robin B- Batgirl now? Okay. Batman and Robin don't actually appear until the final page of the second issue, and really not until the third issue, after Batgirl has done her best nearly capturing Killer Moth, but he's got a helicopter for some reason. <laughs> and he flitters away, and then that's when Batman and Robin show up. And what's interesting about that is that Batman and Robin could have captured Killer Moth. Absolutely. But they were more interested in going like, well, who's this third wheel? It's clearly like this misappropriation of priorities because Killer Moth, like, he becomes a huge hassle for like, you know, six more issues. But I think in Batman's mind, he's like, eh, Killer Moth. (laughs) I got to stump this fire out right now. (laughs) Who are you, lady? And Robin, of course, is like, I got this... I got this dad. I know it's not his dad, but um, I got this. She's just a girl. Right, right, right. Which is a huge triggering issue for Batgirl. And she uses that as an opportunity to, one, call him a twerp in his journal. And I think that in her journal. And that's a majorly underused insult that delighted (laughs) me to no end. And then she leapfrogs, her favorite, her favorite move, leapfrogs off of his skull and teaches him a lesson. And I think that would have gone even further if not Killer Moth actually reappearing in his helicopter and raining fire from above. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, like, she goes like, yeah, this night took a weird turn with me doing this in a bat costume, but, and there's no explaining that, and she knows that, but she's like, I'm still not going to let Batman and Robin push me around. Yeah, yeah. And um, what I love is, is, like, He asks her, like, who are you to wear this symbol? And her retort to that is, well, who are you? Like, I think because she's been thinking about becoming a cop or becoming a FBI agent, she has this preoccupation with qualifications. And she's thinking of qualifications in terms of, can I get the job done? Where Batman is thinking in qualifications of, do you have the emotional fortitude? Do you have the grudge? Do you have the sense of justice that it takes to become part of the Bat family? What's interesting to me is that Bruce Wayne clearly has a sense of entitlement when it comes to his branding. Well, it was his idea. I would like if somebody also started putting out a podcast that was called the comic book couples counseling too, I would be like, who are you? <laughs> Lawsuit. That's what we do. Batman should sue. I, I, I mean, that's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> I mean, Batman could sue. I doubt we could sue. But still, don't do but, it. But what, don't create but, comic book couples but counseling But going too. back to your point is that, that her, in a lot of ways, 
putting on the bat costume is no different than putting on the cop uniform, right? right? It's just another uniform. It's just another gang that she wants to be a part of and is being told no. And they're going, no to your no. Yeah. It's interesting that Killer Moth gets to be the one who entitles Barbara Gordon as Batgirl and that it actually sticks. Yeah. Is there like a reporter in the bushes? Because she comments on that fact. The moment he calls her Batgirl from the helicopter, it's official. Right. And she would much rather be Batwoman, but there's no going back. So there must have been like a reporter in the bushes. The interesting thing about having a journal as narrator is it's by necessity retrospect. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she didn't, it's not like she pulled out her journal at that moment. Like, I guess I'm Batgirl now. Like, you know, we don't know how long after this incident she, like, did she go home that night and then write that down? Or was it after a week or so? Because we do see that this incident does end up in the papers. And we do have this picture of Batgirl with her weirdly kicking. I don't know where that photographer was standing or what kind of crazy zoom lens they brought to the masquerade. But we get a picture of her kicking so we can't see her face, but we get to see that. And the headline is The Dark Knockout, which I really uh, appreciate. Why isn't that her name? <laughs> I would kill for that to be my name. I think The Dark Knockout should be brought back. That's yeah. all I'm Oh, saying. yeah. Um, uh, Dick Grayson does mention as she's skittering away, I guess, that he hopes to see her again. And she overhears that and goes like, the boy Wonder has a crush on me. Gross. <laughs> Yucky. Well, what's interesting is what 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 is the age difference there, Lisa, between Batgirl and Robin at this point? We do get a flashback where um, Robin gets introduced to Barbara Gordon when, like, I guess... Uh, she was in her dad's car, you know, and th- th- we get, like, this really cute preteen high moment. But the thing with, like, the way that women grow during their adolescence and the way that boys grow during their adolescence, like, girls reach their full height a little sooner than boys. So the dif- the age difference can be anything from, like, two to five to seven years, I feel like. Right. I mean, she definitely feels more mature than Dick Grayson. But yeah, again, but that's, like, yeah. I remember in high school uh-huh, where uh-huh. if you were a junior girl dating a freshman boy, it was like sketchy. It was like, <laughs> gross. He's a child. <laughs> you are two whole years older than him. But Barbara's going to have to get used to Robin because he comes bearing presents, bat presents for her. And she thinks that he's acting on his own volition, but in actuality, he's a plant by Batman. Batman wants to test Batgirl's limits to see if she deserves to wear the costume, if she can be one of their like vigilante squad members. And, and he, he uses Robin to infiltrate and train her. This is really interesting because Robin clearly has a crush on Barbara Gordon and has been fostering that crush since the first time that he saw her. So he uses this opportunity of being like the conduit through which Batman can give Batgirl the tools that she needs without necessarily supporting her vigilanteism. He's using that as an opportunity to go like, to get close to Barbara by being like, look, I'm sneaking you treats because I think you're cute. And I think that that is a major miscalculation on Uh, Robin's point. And he's pretty lucky that that does not 
blow up in his face because if I found out, like, if there was a cute boy giving me presents, but in fact those presents were were from coming, his father <laughs> coming from somebody completely different, I would be like, our closeness is built on a lie. And I am surprised that that does not erupt in Robin's face over the course of these issues. Like there is not like the CW OC moment, you know, because if it was one of those television shows, if it was Riverdale, yeah, like that would be a huge conflict and turning point in their relationship. But in this, it's just kind of like, well, she just, she just gets accepted into Bat Family. Yeah, I know. I be, I think because by the end of nine issues, she has to be the Batgirl that we know. Mm, mm, mm. Following the masquerade, she like she is completely jazzed by the whole experience, even though it was not like an across the board success. So she continues to test out her vigilante chops while Batman observes from afar. And so one day she decides, like, this is the day I try jumping from a building with only a rope. And it to me, that proves, like, she is willing to test her safety. And also, like, if Bat, she totally has the attitude of, if Batman can do it, I can totally do it. Even though she knows that she's observed, like, this is clearly, like, a rich dude <laughs> with all kinds of resources. He's got money, yeah. <laughs> um, but... When Batman is watching her, he realizes she's not using the super spongy, like, rich dude rope. She's just using, like, a regular rope. And so she's going to, like... Pull her socket out. Yeah. She's going to die if she uses that rope. And so he intercedes, and he ends up hitting her with knockout gas and bringing her to the Batcave for the first time. And I'm so impressed with her ability to keep her wits about her. Granted... This is from her journal notes, so it is in retrospect. But, like, like she jumps from a building using only a rope. The rope is cut, and she is still in decision-making mode. Like, okay, my rope is cut. Now what do I do? You know, where I feel like if I'm swinging, one, I would never swing from a building. Two, if my rope was cut, I would be like, goodbye world. I'm <laughs> c- completely dying. But she's still in, like, let's, let's solve this. And then the entire time she is in the Batcave, she never is not a detective. She is gathering information. She's making mental notes. She takes them down in her journal later. She, she clearly has a high aptitude for this. Okay, so Batman's clear veiled establishing of good cop, bad cop is like he kidnaps her, puts her in the Batcave, Leaves her with Robin saying like, well, I'm a vigilante and it's nighttime. Yeah, I I, got stuff to do. So do, 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 do. (laughs) I'm leaving. And then he goes to like his little control center where he just watches them on a camera. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And they go to Clear Crossing. Which which I guess is like the Batman danger room. And and I don't know if I've ever encountered this before in a Batman comic. I certainly don't remember the phrase Clear Crossing. But yeah, it's a danger room. Yeah, high tech. Some super high tech stuff. And um, we see Batman in the control room conspicuously turn the safety controls off. And she realizes quickly that she's in in a shootout with a bunch of puppets, but real bullets. So, and she prevails, right? Yeah, but Lisa, she uses lethal force. Yeah, so Batman reveals himself. That's a no-no. And she's like, so, did I cut it? And he's like, no. 
because I'm Batman and I don't kill people. And she's like, that's BS. But it's worth noting that Robin does come to her defense, and which is impressive considering that after this whole uh, rigmarole, you know, Robin does like this nice little golf clap and says like, oh, very impressive. I guess you get your diploma. And Batgirl's infuriated, punches him in the gut, and then knocks him down with one swift chop across the jaw. And, you know, he... He's he's loving it. Robin's loving all of this, which reflects Robin's core attribute of the boy wonder. Like it is a game to him. Crime fighting is something he does for fun. Yeah. And Batgirl, she's being subjected to his game and Batman's test against her very will. She's already established like, hey, I thought you know, being a vigilante was more or less a volunteer thing. I don't know why I'm having to be submitted to your tests and being put in direct danger by these jerks who are supposed to be the good guys. So my question to you is, if she brought a different costume to the masquerade, if she had dressed like Black Canary, uh, her true role model, Mm -hmm. would Batman and Robin have anything to do with her? Probably, probably not. Like... Does he mess with, the, who are the other vigilantes hanging in Gotham right now? Uh, that's a good question. Let's see, like, is well, Wildcat's around. Yeah, so he would probably just be like, eh. Eh, that's Wildcat's brand. Uh, I, don't, I only worry about my brand. Uh, the, like, and go, and they can go like, well, we have someone to cover the likes of Killer Moth, and we can, you know, continue to focus our efforts on the Joker and Two-Face and Clayface and any of the other faces <laughs> to the whole like she doesn't have our gadgets thing she's not working with the same resources she goes like well i don't need gadgets i'm smart i clearly handle myself well and so batman is like well why do you want to do this and she doesn't have like dead parents to point to or anything and and she wasn't even anticipating the essay question and so she doesn't answer fast enough for batman and batman goes like This isn't a game. Time to go home, little girl. Yeah. So at that moment, I'm wondering, is Batman... Continuing the test? Yeah. Is he goading her? Because uh, as a person who went to music school, which is not anything like vigilante school, but like all of the master classes start with like the professional musician going like, if this isn't the only thing you want to do be an opera singer, then uh, do something else. He's in li- and I took that literally. Mode. Yeah. Yeah. I took that literally like, oh, well, clearly I'm going to do something else because I, I am capable of so many other things. But I think that is that that lets him off the hook a little bit too easily because I do think that he is um, uh, like he is testing her. But he's also kind of mad. I would be mad too. The bat symbol is his thing. And from his perspective, she just stole it. He doesn't know the backstory of like, really, I was just teasing my dad, you know? But her response to his disgust is kind of perfect. You know, oh, because yeah. she says that, you know, you do not have a monopoly on this thing. Like, I can help. I can help. I will help. You cannot stop me from helping. And then Robin gasses her in the face. <laughs> well, we do get another really great Oracle reference because she does say, like, I can see Gotham's future and it, it doesn't look good. 
So we do get that tie back. Yeah, she's saying you need more than Robin. Mm-hmm. You need more than Gordon. Goth, you, not just you, but yeah, Gotham. Gotham needs an army. Yeah. And, and you know, she is right, because there are even darker days ahead. And then knockout gas. Um, <laughs> I imagine that Alfred took the head and Robin took the legs and they, <laughs> and they get they get her in the car and of course Robin knows exactly where she lives because cowl or no cowl he would recognize Jim Gordon's daughter anywhere because he's got a crush and it's very cute that cute little crush is going to have to wait because there really is not much Batgirl and Robin in issues 5 and 6 and 7 and 7 uh, but what's important is that Black Canary and Batgirl managed to take down Killer Moth and Firefly. But Batgirl has come to the conclusion that because she just so happens to be in a Batman costume, she's really shot herself in the foot if she wants to, you know, be buddy-buddy with Black Canary. Right, and also when they take them down, uh, the media sees it as Batman and Robin taking them down. Yes, yeah. Batgirl didn't get the satisfaction of bringing the bad guys in. And you mentioned this when we were taking one of our walks, but the idea that, uh, you know, Firefly and uh, Killer Moth now have an arch nemesis in Batgirl indicates that Batgirl has finally made it in Gotham. She has her rogues. Oh, and she knows that totally i think she's kind of satisfied by it oh yeah 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 you know oh and then clayface and joker but (laughs) you know they're not too bad the people who want you dead is is uh people who want you dead and that is the highest form of work. he means you're doing good work in gotham also like a little side asterisk is officer bard oh yeah got he was in an explosion that could have been her dad, and she seems to have some a little pet crush on him. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, you know, if Robin can have a crush on her, Batgirl can have some crushes too. Issue seven ends with her riding a little high, despite not getting the credit on taking down Firefly and Killer Moth. She was the one who chose a creature of the night. So she goes out into Gotham on patrol, which is like, a, you know, that... That's a Batman thing. Mm-hmm. That's a vigilante thing. You got to go on patrol. And she uh, takes down a purse snatcher and she runs into uh, Robin the Boy Wonder once again. That's right. And of course, he opens with a tease like, hey, way to crash this bat cycle more or less immediately. And um, he's like, hey, we just got a call from the GCPD and we're needed. And she's like, oh, really? And that's how chapter seven ends, is them going off. And chapter eight's a very important issue, Lisa. It's the big romantic kiss issue. Yeah, their first kiss. It's not not consensual. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter eight opens with Batgirl looking terrified as Robin leads her on twin bat cycles through Gotham. And he's not revealing exactly what their task is. And he's loving that little power play that they have. And so they have a brief run-in with the Condiment King, one of your faves. Yep, Condiment King, there he is. Dijon in the eye sounds awful. (laughs) Dijon, yeah. It sounds really terrible. Yeah, you're gonna have to wash that out. During that brief run-in with the Condiment King, she does manage to crash her bat cycle Again. again, which 
delights Robin to no uh-huh. end. Uh-huh. And so she's like, well, like, you just enjoy humiliating me, don't you? And he's like, well, uh, I just think that you're taking this whole vigilante thing, like, way too seriously. And then Boy, she wonder. she leans in to his face and uh, he goes, and she goes, like, well, maybe you're just not taking this seriously enough. And, of course, proximity is nine-tenths of the law, I guess. And (laughs) he grabs her by the back of her head and lays lays a big kiss on him. Mm. And she is— Mortified. Stunned. But she doesn't let it distract from the business at hand. No. And where they're going to is the metro. And when she gets down there on the train tracks with the bat cycles, she sees that there's cops everywhere. And that means her dad could be there. So she's on high alert. She does not want to be recognized. But she doesn't have a lot of time to even worry about that because Blockbuster is the threat at hand. And he's threatening to smish everybody. Yes, yeah, smish everybody. What a terrible way to go, the smish. The smish, the smish. And so they it's on Batgirl and Robin to take down Blockbuster and they have a, a pretty darn good fight. Yeah, uh, well Robin go offers to get into the train car first and she's like, "Uh, no." No. And I got so this. she really does take the reins where she is the one who is encountering, who's handling Blockbuster, and really it's on Robin to take care of the people in the train. And Batgirl gets Blockbuster up onto the roof of the Metro car, and that's what takes Blockbuster out, because he's a big dude, and there's low-hanging ceilings yeah, in those Yeah, she tunnels. essentially just outsmarts and him. And you get a big old clud. Her, side, her size, her perceived weakness is her strength. But here is a very crucial moment, right? So... She's up on the roof. Robin's in the train car. She needs to come on down. He kicks out a window to help bring her back into the car. And this drawing that Marcos Martin depicts is really wonderful because Robin has this bright, beaming smile, like the kind of smile you see in The New Frontier. It's like a Darwin Cook smile. In fact, Marcos Martin has a lot of Darwin Cook-like sensibilities that I really appreciate. And Robin grabs hold of... Batgirl by the butt, and he likes it. Yeah, he clearly does. But then once her feet are firmly on the ground, she pushes him away. Yeah, there's that three panels. Yeah, she establishes some distance. And I think this whole incident was to reset the tone of their relationship because he was making it so that she had to follow him. So he took the initiative to go on this call. He took the initiative to not tell her what was going on. He took the initiative to kiss her. And so as soon as the action started, she was like, no. This is I'm, my job. I'm taking, I got this. I'm taking the reins of this relationship and you not, are not entitled to my face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a really great moment. Uh, but she doesn't bear any hard feelings. She's and not it, mean to the kid. <laughs> and it turns out, like we find out from her journal, Robin knows his way around a kiss. Yep, he sure does. Oh, that dick racing. I don't think I've ever had like... In first kisses, I don't think I've ever had my the wits about me enough to go like that was a good or a bad kiss. I always just go like, well, that's this is weird. First off, Lisa, we know that's not true because our first kiss was horrible. It was awful. Because I was not expecting it, and you went for the attack. You were the Robin in our relationship, and I did not know how to like deal. Yeah, no, that was a, I mean. So I I know that we both came away from our first kiss knowing that that was a bad first kiss. Oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) I take back what I said. Good, good. That's on the record. 
So I might not necessarily know a good kiss, but I definitely know a bad kiss when I taste it. Don't one. go dead fish, guys. <laughs> Don't go dead fish. <laughs> all right, back personal. on. Back, well, you know what? This is this is what this podcast is, Lisa. So, yeah. all right. Batgirl has replanted her uh, position of strength and power above Robin the Boy Wonder. She does not get to enjoy that for too long because the police station, while the, uh, Blockbuster was taken on that train, Firefly and Killer Moth were burning the station to the ground. And now she has nothing but fear for the life of her father. Like, what is happening? What am I going to do? Yeah. I think we should regroup at the end of the, like, so now we're at the end of chapter eight and we're going into the final chapter. So things that have been established. She ends chapter eight feeling like her dad is on to her. And I think that's, that's important. Um, also, she has, while he knows his way around a kiss, she has established that, at least to herself, that Robin is not her type and she is not into him. And she feels a certain amount of responsibility for the station being on fire. Yeah, because those are her bad guys. Right, exactly. And so that final journal entry is uh, says, Daddy, I am so sorry. You left me with no alternative. They left me with no alternative. Like Cassandra, I keep looking to the future and still I see, and all I see, sorry, I'm reading off of comicsology on my phone and it's tiny. And all I see is ashes and blood, ashes and blood. And again, we know that Joker's going to put a bullet in her spine. Like, so the consequences are still coming. But, I get, you know, what's great about Oracle is that just because she gets a bullet in her spine, she doesn't become ineffectual, right? So she's constantly charging. She's constantly meeting these obstacles, these defeats, these failures, and uh, overcoming them. And I also think that this is paralleling her to Batman's experience, because one of the major themes of Batman is that he is at least partially responsible for what the Joker does, because the Joker is doing it because of how much he hates Batman. So Joker and Batman are essentially in a two-person system where under stress, they are escalating each other. Dr. Gilbert, that's what Dr. Gilbert would say, right? That's so, also what uh, Batman Begins says uh, at the end of that film. So what comes with being a vigilante is a certain amount of guilt. And that is what Barbara Gordon is feeling at the end of chapter eight, rolling into chapter nine. And do you think that guilt is absent from, say, the police force, from Ch Commissioner Gordon's point of view, because he is within the system of law? Well, when... Captain Gordon is acting as a cop. Like, he is not differentiated from the system that is cops. Like, when he is doing his duties, he's not doing his duties as an individual. Where when Batman is being a cop or being a vigilante, he's doing that as as an individual. So and he doesn't have the protections of... That anonymity of being part of a bigger system. And Gordon is not absent of guilt, but the guilt that he has is different because he is totally fruitless within his own organization and within this very 
awful hellscape of a city, which is why he doesn't want his daughter to get involved in the first place. That, that is an excellent point. Yeah. I think the source of, of Captain Gordon's guilt is he has this platonic ideal of what a cop should be. And because of the, the cops that he works with, and then the fact that he is working in tandem with a vigilante, he is forced to compromise his ethics every single day. And it is crushing him. I like how in this book, they really drive home the fact that Captain Gordon does not like Batman as a rule. They're not buddies. Like working with Batman for him is just like working with any other corrupt cop. But Bruce Wayne's corruption, Batman's corruption is a little more palatable. Yeah. For us as the reader. I mean, like it's his, at uh, the end of the day, it's his book. No, well, no, for us as a reader, but also for Jim Gordon. That's why he's working uh, with, yeah. ba- with Batman because this guy's brand of crazy is better than my department's brand of crazy or the Commissioner Loeb's brand of crazy. Yeah. Anyway, back to the final issue. It opens with Batgirl going toe-to-toe with Firefly and Killer Moth and pretty much, for the most part, taking them down by herself, or at least, as she would say, doing the heavy lifting, doing doing most of the work. But when it comes to the critical moment of who gets to bring the bad guys in, she has just crashed through a window into a pool. And once again... Batman and Robin are getting all of the credit. Showing up in a Batcopter. That's right. (laughs) Um, So that next morning, uh, we see the headline, the paper headline, JCPD still standing. And Captain Gordon is so preoccupied with just putting everything back back together. Yeah. That... He 100% thinks that his daughter is Batgirl, but he doesn't have the emotional fortitude to... um, Confront her in the moment. Exactly. Yeah, which is very convenient because that gives, uh, you know, Batman and Robin to come up with a a, a plan. Yeah, but I I secretly think that it was Batgirl's plan. But anyway, um, it doesn't, like, at this point, though, Barbara feels like... Her time as Batgirl is over. Mm. Yeah, she says my brief and short career as a crime fighter. Yeah, she's and like, so with like the destruction of Firefly and Killer Moth. Well, she no longer has any arch nemeses, so she's she and, can put and, it away. And she figures that Batman and Robin won't have any more to do with her. But what's waiting for her on her bed? It's a little gifty and a note. Um, inviting her back into the Batcave once again. And into Clear Crossing. And this sequence is really interesting because this Clear Crossing is uh, populated by the, all the classic Batman rogues. you got Poison Ivy there, you've got Clayface, and you have the Joker dressed like the Brian Boland killing joke Joker. And you have a panel positioning which recalls the moment in which the Joker will shoot Batgirl. And so here she is confronting her future. And her answer in her journal is, if this is my future, I'm not afraid of it. So she is more or less consenting to the future in which her spine is severed and she becomes Oracle. Which is a very dark thing to put on the reader, right? Because as fans of Barbara Gordon, we know she becomes Oracle and she has a good life after that. And here is Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty saying like, 
okay, we have to be okay with her future in the wheelchair. And we're going to let young Barbara Gordon say she's okay so that we can be okay. Mm. It's a, it's a little messed up. It is. But also narratively delicious. Oh, yum, yum. Following that moment, Batman and Robin reappear and they ask her if she would swear an oath to which she goes like, anytime, any place, I'll, I'll swear an oath. And so Batman reveals his face to her. At and, the graves of his parents. And yeah, and he reveals the reason. Yeah. And the reason is those two gravestones. And um, her journal, she writes, I promise loyalty, I promise secrecy, and I promise courage. All And all I ask is one small boon in return. And that boon is, you have to cover it up so that my my dad is off of my tail. Yeah, so that requires Dick Grayson to get in a Batgirl drag. <laughs> He's got the gams. And his response to that is, I thought she liked me, which tells me that it was her idea that he put on the red wig and the high-heeled boots. And it's time for, like, Batgirl to, you know, tease Robin. Yeah. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. That's right, pixie boots. That's right, pixie boots. And then uh, Captain Gordon is called to make one more compromise. And so he sees Batgirl and he's like, okay, you can have one more sidekick, but that is it. <laughs> oh, if he no only more. knew, if he only knew, so many more sidekicks. <laughs> so where does that end up leaving the relationship between Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon? I think that Barbara having, humiliating Robin by having him put on the Batgirl costume. Emasculating him. Right, which is kind of ironic because I don't think that the Batgirl costume is that more feminine than Robin's costume. <laughs> but um, I think that's her kind of establishing, like, I, I don't see you that way. You don't think it's, the uh, like, um, to use another gendered uh, term, uh, pulling the pigtails, you know, like you tease somebody to let them know that you like them. No, because, because they are flirty. They're flirty, but then we see her later hanging with Officer Bard, helping him set up his new um, right. private investigation office. And so I think that at this time, I think that she's looking to more to go into that direction a little bit more. Well, you shouldn't tease a boy because in teasing a boy, he's going to interpret that as like, she, 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 she kind of likes me. She's humiliating me, but I'll get her back. Oh, I, I mean, I haven't met uh, a, a superhero who did not continue to entertain the thought that everybody is in love with them. <laughs> the, yeah, that's, that's, that's certainly true. So the final page, um, in her journal, Barbara is addressing Cassandra again, like speaking directly to her and saying, like, I've decided to forego predictions and portents. There is what could be and there is the life that I lead right now. And it shows um, Batgirl in her glory facing off with Scarecrow and others. And the final panel is her being flanked by Batman and Robin, kind of establishing that they are now a system. They are now a family. And there's like one cute little final caption that says, not the end. Yeah, but it is the end of this episode pretty much. So we got to start wrapping things up. Uh, all right. So Lisa, looking at this uh, relationship, uh, the origins of Dick and Babs, uh, how do you feel about their future? Like, do you, do you see a great romance just looking at Batgirl year one between these two? 
I'd say no. I think that there is definitely an establishing of an what's going to be an ongoing relationship, but I don't think there's anything in particular to that where you could say this is the moment where their true romance began. Right, because we know that there is more to this relationship, but if Batgirl year 1 was your only connection to these characters, what you're left with is Barbara hopefully hooking up with Officer Bard. Right, or entertaining the idea of like she doesn't she definitely does not see Robin as her OTP. But what is interesting is that with Officer Bard, if she were to go with him, he's a lot like dad. Yeah. Which is also a cliche. (laughs) Uh, And I'm glad that she doesn't go with Bard. Me too. And jumping back over to our love guru, what do you think Dr. Gilbert would say about Dick and Babs? I think at this point, I think she would say like, she would acknowledge that they are now part of a system. Now they are relying on each other and they should, I guess, just accept that and start to track how each other's actions are influencing each other. They now have to act with consideration to each other. So there's like, there's, there's Batman in between Dick and Babs, right? Like there is no romantic relationship here at all by the end of the book. No, but I do think that there is a something that is stronger than a colleague relationship. I oh, think they yeah. have become very well, they're close. Partners. Yeah, yeah they're they've partners. become friends. Yeah. And partners. And that has to work if she wants to be doing vigilante justice in Gotham City, apparently. Dressed as a bat. Dressed as the bat. Yeah. <laughs> right. She she has some very specific circumstances. Yeah. I feel like Dr. Gilbert would also have a lot of advice for Barbara at the beginning of this book when Barbara is going like, if I can't be a cop, I have to find my own path and my own future in which I don't have to depend on anybody else. Because I think Dr. Gilbert would see that as a very naive thing to say, because there is no such thing as a future that's worth- Apart from people. That's worth having, yeah, where you are not reliant on some kind of system. and you, But you do have some control over who that company is going to be. Well, the thought process that Barbara has is very typical of a young thought process. Like when you are hitting your late teens, early 20s, you are breaking away from your parents, right? Which is a necessity. It's like a necessity for continuing the species. Right, right. But you do have to acknowledge that when you break away from your parents, you, you aren't alone. You are still a global citizen. You still have people around you and you need to take advantage of those groups. I think that actually as a society, as like in America, like the way that we were raised, there is a lot, You there's a lot of clout in like going it alone. Like I, like I didn't do anything anybody else's way. I followed my individual American dream and Like, I couldn't have done it without me. Thanks, me. And I think that we could all benefit from the idea of, like, I want this future for myself. Who are the people that I can fuse to? Where are the systems that I can join so that I can gain that future? Like, like, you know, I think that we could all benefit from, like, I want to be 
I want this to be my future. Who's here to help me? Yeah, let's acknowledge our bat families and let's use our bat families. Yeah. And turning Dr. Gilbert towards us, is there anything that you have taken from her advice or or the situations from this comic that you would apply to our relationship? Full disclosure, I've I've read ahead Boo. in extraordinary relationships, and there's definitely stuff that she says that I have already started applying to our relationship. Oh yeah? Yeah. But I think huh. with with the information that we've covered already, just from discussing kind of the forwards, um, I think that when you're in a couple, you just have to accept the fact that if you have an intense emotion it is going to affect the other person in your two-person system. Like, so when we're recording this podcast, when one of us gets frustrated because they end up having to do like 20,000 takes, <laughs> which is something that does happen. I don't know um, who you're talking about, Lisa. <laughs> I just That's want, not me. It's I just totally want our me. listeners to know, like, we've, at this point, We've been recording for a little less than four hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To and, make you're, this podcast. and you're hitting about the hour 22 mark. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, so, yeah. So, during that, we always have a many emotional swings. <laughs> and, like, um, so, like, when one of, one of us is doing 20,000 takes and starts getting frustrated and starts like going like, bark, 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 who am I doing an imitation of? Bark, I, don't, bark, 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 bark. I don't know. It sounds, you sounds can't like else. do that and then go like, well, now why are you irritated and in a bunch? Like this was my emotion and my emotion alone. Like there's no such thing as an isolated emotion. An, an emotion is by necessity going to distribute itself out into the system. Well, for me, I think that's the biggest challenge of any relationship mm -hmm. is because you are going to end up getting infuriated. Like, I'm I'm going to get mad. I'm either going to get mad at you or I'm going to get mad at myself. And just in the process of getting mad, that emotion grows mm. by its very nature. And so recognizing that 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 hot feeling is going to exist and just allowing for it to exist in you or allowing for it to exist in your partner for a while uh i i think i think that's that's just something you you have to get used to but you also have to acknowledge and you can't run away from and you cannot combat and you sh probably shouldn't judge it mm. like if yeah. attention emotions also hard. yeah if attention emotions are are a necessity or an, an, an inevitability in, in, in a system. I'm so sorry. I just totally got tongue tied. Like then why are we so mean to ourselves when we get mad? Yeah. Like why do we get mad and then compound the mad by being mad at ourselves or being mad? Yeah. You got to take a chill pill, man, my friends. That's right. Calm down. Yeah. Take a breath. Take a <laughs> I, breath. If I was, uh, if I was Batman, I would just take a few puffs of that knockout gas he carries around <laughs> everywhere and uses on unsuspecting vigilantes. Oh gosh. That's going to bring us to the end of this episode. I feel like we have barely scratched the surface on Dick and Babs. So where are we going to next? Well, yes, we have just started and we have only barely uh, scratched the surface, Lisa. But before we get into the next storyline, we're taking another trip to the creator corner as we're joined by co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kevin Eastman. Huge get. Yes, it's a short chat, 
But when the opportunity to talk to Kevin Eastman arrives, you take it no matter how much time is allotted. Cowabunga, Cowabunga dude. Cowabunga dude. Super <laughs> excited to get this episode out into the world. IDW is bringing their main TMNT title to a close, and they're about to release The Last Ronin, written by Eastman and Peter Laird. It's a good time to be a Turtle fan. As if there could ever be a bad time. So after we drop that episode, we're creating a little bit of a buffer. Uh, we'll <laughs> return to the world of Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon with a very very special single issue, Birds of Prey, Volume 1, Number 8, which is also written by Chuck Dixon. It's been a long time, but I read this run quite a while ago and remember enjoying it. I won't tell you what this story is about, Lisa. No spoilers, please. But yes, it does take place during the Oracle years, which might be my favorite era of Barbara Gordon, if you couldn't tell that already. I have not read any Oracle comics, so I'm stoked. Well, you're going to have to stay tuned, Lisa. <gasps> Same bat time, same bat channel. That's right. Where can our listeners find you online right now? Uh, Where are uh, you hiding? I'm only, I, I have to put this out there. I'm only accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget, you can email the podcast by writing to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And Brad. Yeah. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. And of course, you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast and by subscribing to us on Podbean, Spotify, and iTunes, also Stitcher, also YouTube. Uh, and while you're on iTunes or whatever subscription service you're using, why don't you give us the gift of five stars? It really warms our hearts and it helps the podcast reach more listeners. Yeah. So until next time, keep your love tank full and your psychic rapport open. And suddenly he's Robin, the boy wonder, the vigilante in training alongside Batman. Uh, but the da 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 da